You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash nextbigtrade to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on demand platform you can watch anywhere. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash nextbigtrade and use promo code NBT20 to get 20% off our plus membership for your first year. Here's what's coming up on this edition of Next Big Trade. Enjoy the show. I would say if you're someone that has that financial ability to freeze up a bunch of meat, you know, I think that's probably something one ought to be thinking about because I do think the price level that we might see over the next few years at the grocery store level could make even us most staunch steak lovers, you know, think twice about how much we want to consume. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Next Big Trade. I'm your host, Harry Malandri from MI2 Partners. On this program, I'll talk to some of the world's foremost traders about current trends in markets and what they believe is a smart bet. We'll hear about their career journeys and, of course, find out what they're targeting as their next big trade. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the next big trade. Thanks for joining us. Um, this week, I'm chatting to Sean Hackett, president of Hackett Financial Advisors. Um, pleasure to meet you, Sean. How's it going? Harry's going fantastic. Never better. We're excited about agriculture and I'm really excited to be on your show today. You know, so. your glass is clearly half full. We're going to get, get on great because mine's always half empty. Could you do me a favor and introduce uh, listeners to what Hackett Financial does? Our primary focus is to price forecast the future price of agricultural commodities, grains, soft ag like coffee and sugar, that kind of thing, and livestock. We do that through a combination of a natural climate cycle algorithm that we created, which allows us to use long, short, and intermediate term cycles to help predict weather outcomes. Uh, we also use what's called smart money capital flows that allows us to use the buying and selling of the different components of the futures market to tell us when timing might be good for a particular trade or for a particular hedge if you're a farmer and that sort of thing. And that's really what we do. We're here to try to help those involved in agriculture, whether as an investor, a producer, or an end user, manage the volatility in these markets to their benefit. So I I knew what you did, because I've been watching a bunch of your videos on Real Vision uh, in the last couple of days, just to, you know, just to prepare a little bit. It's like minimum due diligence you've got to do when you talk to somebody. But uh, for once, usually I know a little bit about the subject I'm talking to somebody about. This time around, not so much. So, so this is going to be all you, Sean, and me listening in, asking dumbass questions. Um, some people who listened before me, they argue that, in fact, it's not that infrequent I ask dumbass questions, but there you go. So uh, something I always ask people, um, what are you looking at? The, what's caught your attention in the news right now? What, what are you focused on? I always try to focus on what everyone is thinking, at this, because usually what everyone is thinking is – the wrong thing to be thinking about. It's the classic contrarian way of looking at markets. Where's their overvaluation, undervaluation? And what I am hearing right now is this preponderance of talk about La Nina. 
that, you know, we've had the, the, by the way, just to take a step back, La Nina are the sea surface temperatures of the central Pacific being colder than normal. And El Nino, which we'll talk about a little later, is when those same sea surface temperatures are warmer than normal. And whether they're cold or warm dramatically impacts the upper airflow, the weather volatility, and the actual weather outcomes in key growing areas of the world. So the La Nina we've been in for the last two years creates a lot of weather volatility for North America and South America in terms of hot, dry weather. And we've seen a lot of that. So that's what everyone is expecting for this year. And we have been uh, strong about our forecast that we would not see the same kind of hot, dry weather pattern that we've seen the last two years. It would be much more uh, cooler and wetter and that we would see overall better conditions. And we're now starting to actually see that grain markets are actually coming under a lot of pressure. And so I continue to like this idea that everyone's looking at the La Nina opportunity when the real opportunity that we see is looking at the El Nino opportunity that's coming right down the road from, from now and what everyone's going to be talking about when I'm on your show again a year from now. <laughs> so, you know, you, you've leapt right into what I would call the investment thesis, I think. But you know what, let's, let's go with that because we, we only have talked about, you know, the NBA playoffs or something otherwise, or, or actually to say the truth, everyone's talking about Russia-Ukraine war. Um, so it, it's a welcome relief from from that. But you know, as I said, I'm I don't know about enough about this. So uh, I can tell you that La Nina is a feminine concept, and El Nino is a little boy child. Um, that's emerging market trading. That's what it will do for you. Uh, but what do we associate with La Nina? What do we associate with El Nino? How does that impact uh, agricultural markets? Before I answer that, I want to take a little step back about what actually makes the weather good or bad, volatile or not. There's two primary variables that we focus on, sea surface temperatures around the world and upper airflow pattern. Those two combinations determine weather. And so La Nina and El Nino are very important because the Pacific is this big body of ocean. And if it's colder than normal or warmer than normal, it does actually impact what's called the Walker cycle, which is the upper airflow pattern of the atmosphere. And so um, it goes on a very sick – we talk about – we mentioned at the beginning of my intro that there's long-term, intermediate-term, and short-term cycles. Well, La Nina and El Nino is very cyclical. We kind of go through – every five years, we switch from one to the other. So we're just finishing up La Nina. And now we're moving towards El Nino, and then we'll go back to land. This has been going on as far as we humans have been on this earth and beyond, this pattern sure. back and forth, back and forth. Now, not every La Nina is exactly the same, and then every El Nino is exactly There's always different variables that are involved that determine how impactful a La Nina will be or how impactful an El Nino would be. And the job of my job is to have the, those other variables know when they're combining in certain ways and what those certain ways mean to what this particular weather pattern is going to be. So we had a La Nina that started in 2020 and it's been with us through the spring. And that created extremely hot, dry weather in South America. We had one of the worst soybean crops this past season in a long time. The prior year, we had one of the worst corn crops. We had a horrific drought in the coffee crop in Brazil that was one of the worst droughts they'd seen in at least 50 years. One of the best bull markets I've ever seen in coffee. Yeah, it was a, and it was one of our big 
as you know, if you've been watching some of our stuff, you know, one of our, our, our big ideas uh, from a year ago or a year and a half ago, um, it also caused an historic frost last summer, which is another consequence of La Nina that we also predicted would, that we had a really good shot last year of something like that. So, um, so that's kind of what La Nina means. And it also means very good weather in Asia, lots of rain, good weather for India, good weather for Africa, good weather for Southeast Asia. You know, it, it's, it's good weather over there, but it's really ugly weather in North America and South America. So disproportionately, that means it hinders the production of grains, cotton, coffee, you know, those kind of things that are predominantly grown in this region. And, and, our, and, and we are, and South America is very large exporters of. That's what has happened. And, and the reason why there's this oscillation, not to get too crazy, but there's a, something called the 11-year solar cycle, where you go from no sunspots to a peak of sunspots to low sunspots. It's an 11-year cycle. When you get cold sea surface temperatures, it's because you're getting upwelling currents, that the currents is, are pushing this cold water from, the, you know, from deep down to the surface. And when you get El Nino, it's because you're getting downwelling, where the current is forcing the warm water in the surface to come like this, and it, and it warms it. And the, whether you get upwelling or downwelling has a lot to do with where we are in the 11-year solar cycle in terms of the solar wind and how that solar wind is, in, is, is combining with the moon, which we know impacts our currents every single day, high tide, low tide, that sure. sort of thing. Um, and so we can pretty much predict when we're going to have La Niñas and El Ninos. We're now, the, the La Niña is weakening dramatically. In fact, we're not actually in La Nina right now. If you define simply by the sea surface temperatures of the Central Pacific, if they're minus 0.5 degrees colder than normal, that's La Nina. We're not, we're no longer, we're actually minus 0.3. We actually moved out of La Nina territory, um, based upon that definition. So, so the thing now, it doesn't happen like that. It, it's a transitionary period, but our overall forecast is that this weakening is going to continue and that we're likely to be entering a plus 0.5 sea surface temperature central pacific by the first quarter of 2023 and officially set off in the nino pattern and an nino pattern means lots of moisture in both south america and north america in cooler growing season which is ideal for growing big grain crops big cotton crops big coffee crops um and tends to be a period where we 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 have oversupply of those kind of things but africa especially West Africa, India, Southeast Asia gets really, really hot and really, really dry. And so uh, the commodities that tend to be hurt by a, 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 an El Nino tend to be cocoa, which is a West African grown crop, sugar, which is heavily, heavily grown in India and in China, um, and rice, which is heavily grown in obviously India, Southeast Asia, um, and so th those would be the crops that we would be looking for production challenges going forward instead of the grains, which have been the ones, the poster children for, you know, the weather volatility we've seen in the last couple of years. So our way of thinking is that those markets are where the opportunities should be. And then it's our job to determine when and how to do it. So, so my impression is that we have uh, poor weather conditions for grains in North America at the moment. We have drought conditions. Um, I could be wrong about that. 
Uh, and we've had a problem in the front uh, with France, which is a major wheat exporter. Ukraine has some issue with wheat exports at the moment, uh, which people may be familiar with. Uh, and so overall, we've had a bull market in grains. Is this switch transition to El Nino from La Nina likely to rescue grains this year? Will we get enough moisture? The answer is we feel we will. And it's interesting because it's a transitionary situation as the, as the growing season goes on, the La Nina impact lessens and the El Nino impact starts to get the upper hand. Um, it's interesting if you look at the drought areas today versus a year ago, we're down about 10%. So, I mean, we've actually been seeing the drought areas shrink. Now, now it still means there's a lot of areas that are drier than they, than they really ideally would be. But we've also seen significantly uh, cooler temperatures here in the last couple of weeks and expecting to see much cooler temperatures uh, heading into mid-July versus what we saw the last couple of years. Cool and dry, the crops can actually be okay if you get timely moisture. Hot and dry, you're in big, big trouble, which is what we've had the last couple of years. Same thing with France and some of the places in Europe. They've been getting some timely rains and some cooling off of temperatures that even though you look at the statistics and the statistics say they're in a drought, they're actually seeing much better what they call vegetative health, where the satellites take a picture and are able to determine healthy versus non-healthy vegetation versus a year ago, we're seeing much better vegetation health um, in both of these areas from last year, even though we're still you know, looking at drier than than desirable conditions. So overall, I think the situation is better, and I think it will continue to get better, and I think the crops will turn out okay. And I think that's why you know, you're looking at the grain markets really been correcting very strongly here in the month of June. We've seen some big, big knockdowns in wheat and rice and soybeans and cotton. I think it was limit down yesterday in the market. Yeah. The market's starting to get comfortable, but maybe – you know, maybe this La Nina is going away. Maybe we've overplayed some of the weather premium that we had over the springtime. Yeah, definitely. The grains have definitely come off the boil. If anything, there's something that looks a little bit like uh, head and shoulders forming in wheat. Uh, I don't, I don't judge these things. I just base stocks. So I, I had a position in grains. I don't anymore because I stopped out. But, um, you know, so in doing the little bit of minimal, minimal due diligence, I watching a bunch of your videos that I did. I got horrified by some of the stuff I came across. Uh, you talked about other factors, not just La Nina and El Nino, uh, mostly to do with solar activity. So you talked about the grand solar cycle minimum, and uh, you, you chilled my blood pretty effectively in discussing those solar cycles. Could you discuss that um, for, for people listening into the podcast now? This is a, one of our longer-term cycles that's part of our algorithm that we talked about at the beginning of the show. And uh, every 220 years, like clockwork, the sun goes into a period of 40 or 50 years where the overall solar activity is less than normal. So we talked about the 11-year solar cycle. What it means is that the amplitude is less. So, so if you look at the peak of, of the last solar cycle that occurred in 2015, it was half the amplitude of the one before it. The one that we're now getting to the peak now is, once again, very similar to the last one. It's about half. So, so what that means is we're getting less energy from the sun entering the Earth's atmosphere. The most important feature of that is that it cools the outer atmosphere of the Earth, and it sh actually shrinks the Earth's atmosphere because cool air sinks and it shrinks. And the northern and southern jet stream, which think of it as a rubber band that goes around 
the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere, if you take a, a sphere and you shrink it, the rubber band's going to crimp. And instead of having what, what I call a sine wave flow, it's going to have more of an agitated meridional flow, very north to south uh, kind of construct. That's what the polar vortex we've been hearing more and more about in the last few winters. Um, you know, the bombogenesis kind of storms, which is almost like a winter hurricane. It's, it's this increase in weather volatility when very, very cold meets very, very hot and it's got to do something about it. Yeah. Um, we're in one of those cycles and it means we're in an, a, a, we're in an elevated period of increased weather volatility around the world. That means extreme heat, extreme cold, extreme droughts, extreme floods. Here's a classic example where in southern China, they just saw some of the, one of the wettest 30 days they've seen in a hundred years. 50 inches of rain fell in some areas in southern China, while other areas of the world, you know, haven't been able to buy a drop of rain for two years. It's that kind of bifurcation that this grand solar cycle minimum offers. And it's very hard to consistently grow good yielding, high agriculture production when you have these wide swings. I'll give you another great example. In August of 2020, when we had what appeared to be a pretty good crop, we had what was called the Duraco storm, where the entire corn crop of Iowa was flattened by hurricane force winds. They had actually 110 mile hour winds that came out of nowhere and one of these bombogenesis late summer, almost hurricane kind of storms. We have never seen that before in anyone's recent or non-recent memory. And it, I mean, Iowa being the number one corn producing state in the United States, that set off a wild turn of events. And, and that's when corn was $3.18. That literally placed the low after the Duraco storm. So it's those kinds of things that are a more common feature. The triple frost we had in central Brazil, coffee years, hadn't happened in 26 years. That's another example of extreme weather volatility that this grand solar cycle is going to cause more because of this change in the jet stream to meridional flow north to south, undulating, pushing some of this Arctic and Antarctic air into the lower latitudes or the upper latitudes, depending on what hemisphere you're talking about. Um, and, and it's going to be a feature that will be with us. You know, it's not, this does, this just this doesn't go away in two, a couple of years. This is going to be a 30 or 40 year phenomenon before, uh, we see the sun get back to normal activity and we get weather volatility back to, to a normal boundary from what we're looking for. Yeah. It was exactly so. that that chilled my blood. That was it. Yes. <laughs> so I've learned another valuable thing because I didn't know you pronounced it direct cut, direct cho or direct I thought it was uh, direct cho. So I've, that's, it just goes to show that words you've never hear pronounced. I was 18 <laughs> before I'd understood that hyperbole yeah. was pronounced, not pronounced hyperbole. Just goes to show. Um, I still say hyperbole because it just sounds better. <laughs> right, right. So um, this uh, this is an alarming set of prospects, right? So agriculture is critically dependent on uh, predictability of weather conditions. And just more volatility in weather will lower yields because somewhere in the world is going to not be getting the weather it needs. So in itself, that kind of, sounds like kind of bull market item. The trades you're focusing on now, though, are kind of focused on the transition from La Nina to El Nino. Uh, so let's talk about those trades, which I, I think you mentioned two just before we came on air that you thought were the, the, the pick of the things to look at. Sure, but just before I get there, I, w I would like to say that, El, that even though El Nino is normally 
a much better weather pattern to give you an understanding of the increased weather volatility. I'd like to go down to 2019, the mm-hmm. last time we had an El Nino within this grand solar cycle, which just, it just, that's when it really began. And we had historic flooding in the United States in, during the planting season of 2019. We were trying to get corn and soybeans planted in late June, early July. It's how late the crop was. I remember very so clearly. Even, I remember that, that watching the whole thing unve- uh, unfolding and thinking to myself, this is an epic disaster globally. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, it, and so so even in an El Nino, which is normally a supportive pattern, it doesn't mean every El Nino is going to provide a one in one hundred year flooding. By the way, I'm just saying that that. It takes even El Nino, it takes what normally happens and it amplifies the volatility. Maybe it won't be the U.S. that has that. Maybe it's South America sure. that gets the excessive flooding this time. But that's an example that even in the more favorable environment, you could still have weather volatility that is still not going to give you the big crop that you would normally expect to see in an El Nino. Yeah. So, so the trades, as we said before, that we think are interesting are those that are going to benefit from a warm dry pattern over in Africa, over in Asia. We think those are the places. Um, and, and looking at all of that and looking at, we like tree crops as, as a whole in terms of because because it's a tree crop, it's not annually planted. We know that when prices are too low for too long, you don't do the right husbandry. You don't take care of, of the plantations. You let trees age too old. You know, You just can't snap your finger and respond to high prices in a tree crop it takes several years to do it. Whereas in corn, hey, you like the price the next year, you <laughs> plant record acreage and you solve the problem sure. or, or theoretically solve the problem. So we like tree crops when we can find the right setup. So when we're looking at the opportunities we see from El Nino, we think the cocoa market is a, is one of the most interesting um, markets to look at in agriculture as a, you know, as, as a, uh, you know, a non-livestock item. We think that's the market to be looking at the correlations between El Nino and West African drought are some of the highest, meaning we run these correlation coefficients to try to, to see you know, how solid are these correlations over long periods of time. And drought in West Africa, you know, there's a 92% correlation coefficient to drier than normal conditions in West Africa. And the, as we move into an El Nino kind of a period, there's other factors that can make it worse or less, but it's really a, you know, a very high, high outcome sort of situation. And because they don't really grow anything else majorly in West Africa. It can be a very independently performing commodity. Um, even if grains continue to be bearish, even if we, you know, we, we, we see a lot of the ag markets coming under pressure, you know, cocoa can actually just go on its own because it's being impacted in an area that doesn't really impact any other markets. So just as an example, the grains have had this quite frankly, historic rise over the last couple of years and the cocoa market has been completely flat. It's the same price today as it was. Two years ago, despite our unbelievable crazy bull market in grains. And so the flip side of that, if the grains have this big setback and correction every period that I think is coming, then uh, you know, then that's going to be a situation where uh, cocoa could really be a relative outperformer in the ag space. 
it's hilarious I, I as i was watching one of your videos earlier i was watching one with maggie lake and uh you had like uh the same whoever your landscaper is i'm assuming that's a landscaper who's out there he he comes on every, every time you do uh a broadcast he will he will tell the goal i can tell the goal way very <laughs> no, sure that, you want absolutely not okay. no. right. so no it's just fine uh so yeah i can see that coco has to be a diversifier for a, a portfolio of ags uh, because they don't grow anything else. But if we have drought conditions in West Africa, does that mean we'll have drought conditions across all of Africa? Or is, it only, is it very specific to West Africa? It's it's really, really specific to really West Africa has the highest correlation. Um, so, South you know, South Africa, for example, actually gets good rainfall. So the corn crop that they grow down there, which actually, you know, it has some impact. It's meaningful, yeah. It's meaningful. You know, it's not, it's not a in, it's not an immaterial production corn down there. They actually get good rainfall. So, so I want to, I don't want anyone to think that this is an Africa issue. Africa is so big. It's so diverse. You know, it, there's definitely different impacts, but this is more of a central, um, especially West central, uh, impact is the drought that I'm talking about here. Now, the reason I ask this question is because with grains where they currently are, uh, you've kind of, you've, probably already killed god knows how many million africans who are marginal uh have a marginally attached to the global economy um and i was thinking it would be a really bad thing if we were to have a drought across the sahel um you know over the next 12 months um as it is i think the odds are that we're going to see extreme political instability in africa anyway because of hunger um, and then also you have other non-agricultural commodities that come from Africa. And in, in the case of things like cobalt or manganese, the other big supplier was the Russian Federation. So it becomes suddenly really important what was happening in Zambia and what's happening in Cong- in Democratic, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, yeah. because what you don't want is a whole bunch of armed militia groups saying, you know what, let's recruit and go on the hunt and uh, start knocking out some mines. Um, yeah. Things could get very nasty for everybody if that happens. So anyway. That's- yeah, I mean, the, 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 you know, the, 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 I always say with agriculture, I always view agriculture as weather derivatives, but there are these geopolitical cycles, these macroeconomic cycles, these monetary cycles that run underneath the overall weather cycle that can accelerate the trend or decelerate the trend depending on you know, what you're talking about, but certainly that kind of instability, which I agree with, you know, is going to clearly, I think, escalate, you know, is kind of a, of a bullish accelerator to some of these uh, commodities that you mentioned, but especially, you know, cocoa is not, you know, the, uh, you know, Ivory Coast and Ghana, you know, we've had political unrest here before, even when times were much better right. than they are today. So, so definitely, you know, the, the cocoa is noted for having geopolitical um, causation, for much higher cocoa prices on top of the weather. I try to predict what I can, what I think fairly well. And I try to, to view those other kind of things, which, you know, I'm no geopolitical uh, doctorate expert on these kind of things and timing it all. I know it's there, but um, I kind of let, you know, let that be an accelerator to what I'm talking about. Sure. But I try, I try to stay out of trying to predict exactly when and to, and to what extent that will or will not impact price of cocoa. I just don't think I have a good handle on, on really giving one the kind of confidence that I can when I'm dealing with climate and that sort of thing. So the co- so. cocoa trade's kind of cute 
because it hasn't moved for five years. It's one of the few commodities where you're getting a, a real discount uh, after taking into account the inflation effects. Um, well, in the way we measure this, it's kind of like the PE of a stock. We have what's called relative value. We measure every single individual commodity against overall commodities. You can use the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index. You can use the BLS Cash Commodity Index. Pick, pick your index of choice, but just keep it consistent. And when you look at the price of cocoa relative to the price of overall commodities, it's at the it's actually at the cheapest level it has been in 45 years relative to overall commodities. So I mean, it's PE is as low as it's ever been. Now, just because it's cheap, <laughs> doesn't mean it can't stay cheap. Or get cheaper, you know? yeah. Or, or, or doesn't mean it can't get cheaper, but big moves higher come from undervaluation. So sure. just to kind of give an example, the wheat market was a market several years ago that was in the same position where its relative value was at the lowest it had ever been, ever, in 45 years. And of course, we've had a move there that has been remarkable, remarkable. Yeah. So, so, it, it, so, what I'm saying is that the the situation is there that the cocoa market is sufficiently cheap that if we did get the correct fundamental and climactic catalyst, you know, the move would have the potential to be a very, very significant move. You know, this wouldn't be one of those. Oh, it could go off for a little while. I mean, it would have the ability to if it got to an overvaluation. You know, if you look at, you know, how high has cocoa gotten in the past, you know, and I'm not making this forecast, by the way, but I'm just saying, you know, based upon the historical high-end re relative value, based on what, where current commodities are, we'd be looking at something like 6,500 on cocoa would be where it would go if it traded at its historic high valuation relative to overall commodities. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but you see there's just a lot of upside potential given the historical boundaries. Yeah, I wouldn't want to use the term vulnerability, but a market which hasn't been rewarding growers, uh, where it's all concentrated in a location which is vulnerable to drought, according to uh, right. previous uh, precedents, and which hasn't acted so far, there's a lot, lot to like uh, in that bet. It's still a bet. You can still lose money, but uh, but it's it's got an awful lot going for it. Now that was one of the two uh, trades you highlighted when we were chatting earlier. When you do you prefer that to the other one? Why don't we tell people about the other trade you highlighted? Yeah, the other one is sort of a it wouldn't be wouldn't wouldn't be a, an instinctive market for most unless you understood agriculture and the cycle. But we're interested in the cattle market, and just to give a little history, the cattle market goes to what's called herd rebuilding where it's actually uh, retaining cattle, it's having more babies, it's growing those animals. It takes two years, you know, to get, you know, to get the cycle. It's a very long cycle and there's periods we have herd liquidation. So when grain, when feed prices get very high and, it's, you, and the cattle rancher can't afford to feed the cattle anymore, so it's just not profitable, then he says, I'm sending it to the market. I'm set, I'm just I'm, I'm getting I'm just going to sell all my animals cuz I'm not getting any return for feeding $8 corn for example. Mm -hmm. Um and if it's very very dry and the pasture growth in the grasslands is not there like what happened in Australia a few years back, um once again, the feed isn't there. They can't can't fatten animals up so they they send it to the market. So we've been dealing with almost three years of herd liquidation in the cattle market. That's been putting excess supply, excess supply onto the market, excess supply. But when, if I'm correct that we've made a, uh, an interim high in feed prices and grain prices for now, um, and we're, and we're going to come down and those cheaper feed prices are going to translate into a more profitable rancher. 
And the ranchers can say, wait a minute now. Uh, I actually get rewarded for holding my cattle back and producing more cattle instead of sending it to the marketplace. I get rewarded for increasing the weights of the cattle that I do have because I can afford to do it. And if I can increase the weights of the cattle, when I send it to the market, I get more for that cattle because he has more meat on him than not. Um, uh, when the rain, if the rains come from El Nino and the pasture lands are full of wonderful grazing grass and hay and alfalfa, hey, shoot, I, I can keep them on the range. I can keep them eating. I can keep them. I don't have a, a need to get them onto the marketplace. Yeah. So that all of that, uh, is what creates what's called the herd rebuilding cycle. The last one we went through in the United States specifically was 2013-14. If you remember, 2012 was a one in 50 year drought we had in the United States. You know, we had a horrific corn crop. We had $8 corn. Um, and then we topped out and we came down and then the herd rebuilding cycle began and we had a run up in the cattle market to all time record high prices that peaked in 2014. So cattle tend to run. When grains are falling, cattle tend to be held back when grains are running a lot higher. Yeah. Um, Australia was a classic example in a different location where they had, because they almost exclusively feed, uh, do pasture uh, feed in uh, Australia. They had arguably one of the worst droughts in 100 years for two years, sure. and then the rains came. Herd, herd liquidation ended. They retained the animals, and their uh, cattle price, cash cattle price went up fourfold. Not predicting we're going to go up fourfold, just giving you an example of how powerful a, a completion of a herd liquidation cycle can be in entering a herd rebuilding cycle. Um, it can be a very powerful move. And because you, in, in the hog market, for example, you can respond within four to six months to a good price. You can increase your supply. In chickens, you can increase your supply within, thir within 30, 60 days. In cattle, you really can't get supply going until about 18 to 24 months. So the cycle, it's kind of like a tree crop. You know, you just can't respond right away. If, if you if, if you want to get that production going, you've got to hold the animals back and you've got to let them produce. you got to let them grow. And that means those animals are not available to satisfy the market supply. So we think that that's an interesting backdoor way to play in El Nino, which we think is going to provide better weather, bigger uh, grain crops, lower feed prices, and better pasture ground, specifically for the U.S. So my doctor generally tells me to avoid red meats um, and to consume statins. Um, you can tell by looking at me, Sean, that you can see what's going on there. But it sounds like I should like, go go for it for the stakes for the time being, because next year I won't be able to afford them anymore. <laughs> well, I mean, if you are someone that does like uh, steaks and I mean, and I, I am one that likes it a lot. Uh, I will say, you, you, Sean admits, will admit to occasionally having uh, I, the odd steak, and uh, I do, regardless I do. of his medical advice. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, until I have to stop, I'm not going to, I guess, is the way I'm, I'm taking right, it. <laughs> right. Well, it's not but anyway, but, but, I, but I guess what I'm getting at is that you know, what you're asking is, you know, if I have a big freezer at home. You know, should I be thinking about, and if, I, and if I'm really someone that does like, you know, a lot of beef, whether it's ground beef, whether it's the high ends, whatever it is that, you, that you, is of your choice of interest, you know, should you be putting a lot of beef in the, in the freezer and, 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 you know, vacuum packing it? And, you know, I would say if you're someone that has that ability, that, that financial ability to, to stockpile or freeze up a bunch of meat and you have the capacity to freeze a bunch of meat, 
you know, I think that's probably something one ought to be thinking about because I do think the price level that we might see over the next few years at the grocery store level, you know, you know, could make, um, uh, even us most staunch, uh, steak lovers, you know, think twice about how much we want to consume. Yeah. It looks like I'll be doing the chicken and the tofu and the occasional, uh, <laughs> the, the way things are panning out. The, the tofu sounds like it's going to be pretty economical <laughs> the way I see it. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so of those two, the cocoa versus the cattle futures, which is, which would you recommend? I mean, are you kind of, is it about price action? Is it, what do you need to see to decide to go big for what either of these trades? I always, you know, like to look at obviously our weather, you know, our weather algorithm, are we seeing things playing out? Are things developing? So for, as an example, is the El Nino uh, approaching faster? Or is it taking a little longer? Um, are we seeing this uh, a hot dry pattern in the U.S. Uh, come back uh, in this transitory period, cr- creating a, a, a kind of a, a worse crop than I'm thinking? You know, I try to view those kinds of production weather things to help determine whether my thesis is a little further out or or starting to get a little further close at hand um, to determine you know which one might be more timely. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we look at the smart money capital flows. We've created the smart money algorithm that we utilize, the commitment of traders on Friday that come out from the CFTC and developed. Uh, we looked at every single constituent from the disaggregated report and determined which ones can, re- can we use that have historically had a high batting average in being long at the bottom and being short at the top. No indicators perfect we should never use one tool only we always use a number of tools but it's an important tool if we see smart money piling into a market and really getting aggressive um you know they know more about the market that, than anyone can collectively than I, even i can because i don't sure. have you know an ability to know everything that's going on so i try to use those kinds of things to determine and force price action has the market fallen a lot is it giving me a, a, an opportunity here on the low side of some kind of a technical pattern that's th- that's saying that this your risk reward here is pretty good or, or has had a big rally and maybe this is not the exact best time to be looking at the market. And so I try to use all those kind of things to determine, you know, when's the best time. Uh, you know, and of course, you know, some people, you know, have a three month horizon. Some people have a, a one week horizon. Some people have a nine month. You know, we're more longer term oriented. We always try to be very clear that we like to look at, you know, nine month, 12 month, 18 month kind of trending markets that we think can trend for that period of time. Sure. Does it mean, you know, it doesn't mean there's anything wrong if you're a shorter term trader or shorter term hedger. It just means that we're oriented for the longer term trade. Sure. So. Okay. So let's say I'm, I'm interested in, in the cocoa trade. How would I implement, what's the efficient way to get exposure to cocoa as a retail investor? Because often, you know, it, it can be very difficult as retail. You don't really want to play with big futures contracts with, with uh, very high tick values, how would I go about getting exposure? Well, uh, given that that the majority of people, uh, you know, just don't know a lot about agriculture, it's just, it's just, it's nothing, it's nothing personal. Most people just, you know, they know stocks, they know bonds, they know real estate, but agriculture is this pocket of, of the financial world that is just not really understood. And, and of course, futures and options are even less understood by many. So um, the best route is to simply look at whether, you know, an ETF or an ETN, um, on the commodity itself and, and just use that to kind of get yourself, get your feet wet in just buying a commodity ETF, seeing how it's tracking, seeing how it's trading. I do know they have 
options that can trade on these ETFs and ETNs as well. If you wanted to get some extra juice, extra leverage, if you understand the option world and, and have, you know, a lot of people who do stocks do understand the option world. They just don't understand the, the agricultural world. You know, you know, one can get a little more aggressive with uh, some longer term options on ETFs. I would say that, that, you know, unless you're more sophisticated, you understand futures and options, you understand our culture, where you can go more the futures and options route, you know, in the exchanges, which is what I involved in, you know, that's kind of something you really, you know, have to understand what you're doing. It's a higher risk venture and you really have to be very much, uh, it's not a um, spectator endeavor if you're doing it in the, in the futures market or in the options on the futures market, whereas an ETN or an ETF can be more of like buying a stock. You can put it away for a while. It's not something that has to be managed as aggressively as if you're trying to get, you know, more sophisticated in what I, the area that I'm involved in, which is the actual futures themselves and the options on those futures in these ag markets. Yeah, a, a lot of people are not really designed for margin calls. Um, I, I, uh, let's just say I'm a little, I see, I think the polite term is seasoned. There are other terms which are less polite, but I, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with margin calls, but I'm pretty sure my wife won't like it if I dabble in cattle futures and suddenly the lawn's got 20 head sitting on it, chewing the grass, although it will save on the lawn mowing costs. But, um, uh, that would be, you know, you don't want to take delivery of live, live cattle, certainly not live hogs. Anyway, believe me, you don't don't want delivery of live hogs. So bear that in mind, everyone listening in, don't take delivery, roll your futures appropriately. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. And elsewhere, does that mean, so should I assume that you would have a bearish view in elsewhere in the agricultural complex? Would you, would you be bearish grains? Well, we have been bearish grains. We put out a major top recommendation to our farmer customers that we work with who, whose job, our job to them is to get them to sell their corn, their cash corn, their cash soybeans, their cash wheat. You know, we made a major top call in, in mid late May that we thought that we were at an important juncture where our farmers need to be selling and get, you know, take some of this money home on the farm. Yeah. Um, and, and so, and, and so we've turned bearish grain markets. We want to be very clear about that. And, and we remain bearish. Uh, into the you know late summer when we typically get your harvest low seasonal season, we think that you know you can have some some volatility here, some weather rallies potentially still, but we still think the trend is down you know into the late summer early fall, and then we'll have to take another look at what's going on and how low do they go. But we're definitely on the bearish side of grains right now. We think that the two year run that we've had is due for a pause, which is not unusual. Um, you know markets run as hard and as fast as the grain markets have done here over the last couple of years. You know, if you look at the period from 1998 to 2012, the grain markets had two vicious consolidations and corrections um, in between uh, that long period of bullish prices in the 19, from 1968 to 1982, two very, very painful bearish uh, consolidation corrections during that very bullish time for agriculture. So, so you have to be aware it's nothing is straight up. There are these gut punches that you get from time to time that keep you honest. We think we're involved in one of those gut punches, and it's really going to be driven by a more favorable El Nino pattern that will provide better conditions for bigger crops and allow some of these ending stocks, which have been greatly depleted, to uh, you know to be rebuilt up 
um, and to get the market, um, you know, kind of in a in a more bearish mode. We think we're well along the way of beginning in that bearish trend right now. So, and if I were to look out beyond the next two years, uh, sorry, if I were to ask you to look out beyond the next two years. How would you, you know, it's, it's impossible to answer this question fairly, but I'm asking it anyway. Would, would you, would you be a more bullish or bearish of ags going on a 10 year view? Well, historically, the agricultural bullish environment, I will call it, tends to be 15 years on average. I mean, you go back through all the cycles, it lasts roughly 15 years. Um, and so this is we are, we're in the second year. If we started in the summer of 2020, we're we're two years into a 15-year bullish period for agriculture. Um, so we we would think that we're still in the early stages, although we've had one very powerful rally already. But that we're going to be looking for opportunities on the downside when we think the markets have gotten too cheap and we think our weather cycle is changing. Out. And, I'll, and and if I have a, and if you permit me, I'd like to go over what I think might be the next important weather cycle. Oh yeah, hell yeah, go on. In there's a longer term cycle, or I always call it an intermediate term cycle, called the Gleisberg cycle. Dr. Gleisberg was a physicist that went to, that studied the sun his entire life, the activity of the sun, and he found out that an actual full solar cycle is approximately 90 years. Um, and not to, not to get very very complicated, but but we talked about the 11 year solar cycle mm-hmm. in the, uh, earlier in the show. The way you get a solar cycle is that the magnetic fields, the magnetic fields of the sun either get lopped on one side in the northern hemisphere, that's one solar cycle, or they get lopped on the southern side of the, of the southern hemisphere of the sun, that's the second solar cycle. 22 years is called a hail cycle, which is, is, which is one full, one of these cycles. Yeah. Four, four of the hail cycles is 88 years or approximately the Gleisberg cycle. He found that that's actually the completion of an entire solar cycle. And that every approximate 90 years, when you get the completion of four hail cycles, the sun's overall positioning, solar activity, and its interaction with the moon and the other forces of the solar system create an historic drought in the Midwest. And I'm not talking about a you know, one in 20 year drought. I'm talking about like a one in 100 year kind of a drought, like what Australia experienced a few years back. The last time. Like the in Gleisberg's- the 1930s. You're going to tell me about the Dust Bowl, aren't you? 34, 35 was the last time that the Gleisberg cycle kicked in. And if you roll that forward, 2024, 2025 is the next iteration of the Gleisberg cycle. If you go back to 19, uh, to 1844, uh, 1844, uh, 45, that was the one in 100 drought of the 1800s in the Midwest. You can go back to the 1755 is when they were selling bonds to pay, to help pay for the farmers' losses of crop failures during the one in 100 drought of 1755. We can go back and back and back. We can verify this with tree ring analysis, ice core sampling, further historical records that are very, very good in the U.S. And it's just an amazing cycle that this Dr. Gleisberg determined. Um, and it's coming up again. Luckily, as, we, as luck would have it, it's coming up again in 2024, 2025. And so we feel there could be a pretty, you know, quite frankly, a one in, it, it's a, it's a one in 100 year, uh, weather event that kind of like what happened in Brazil last year with the frost. It's kind of one of those rare things that doesn't happen. Well, but, but it, and of course it, just because it has happened as far back as I can go doesn't mean it has to happen again. 
you know, we know Mother Nature can always, always have a sense of humor and throw a curveball. But what we're, what we try to do is say, what does the cycle say? And then we look for the signposts. Are we getting the signposts? They're telling us that we're moving towards this Gleisberg cycle, one and one year drought. And there's a lot of things that we know to look for that as we get closer, we'll be talking about in our, to our subscribers and to our farmers and to our traders about what are we going to be saying? It's happening. It's not happening. It's happening. It's not happening. And so that we, we are going down the line or, it's, oh, you know what? It's not going to happen. We did the same thing with the coffee frost. Every signpost says, yes, it's happening. Yes, it's happening. We're getting this signal. We're getting that signal. And it gave us confidence. I mean, we know we were going to have three frosts. We thought one would be sufficient. We wound up having three frosts, you know, last year. So, so that's something I really feel everyone needs to be thinking about. If you're in agriculture, as a producer, as a livestock producer, buying the feed cheap, hopefully a year from now when we're at the lows, um, or if you're, or, or if you're an investor or trader, you know, it could really be a really, really wild situation that is on the table based on our cyclical work. And so that would be something, you know, we're going to be really honing in on as we get later on in 23. Right. So the question that popped into my head as you were explaining that was that I realized I didn't know what happened in Latin American grain markets when the Midwest went through a dust bowl. I didn't know what happened in Australia. Would, would a Gleisberg cycle type event be associated with global famine or is it a localized problem in North America? This is primarily a U.S. one in hundred drought phenomenon. Uh, we the Gleisberg cycle can mean. How can I say this? Um, what's interesting is excessive flooding in China, in South China, is historically noted to occur the three years before the one in one hundred drought in the U.S. Based upon the Gleisberg cycle, and anyone's been following South China the last three years, they've had yes. three years in a row yes. of flooding that has been beyond. Anyone's, you know, it's just yes, beyond because of enormous monsoon type rainstorms, and, and, and we're having it again this year, again yeah, this year. Yeah, and and that actually happened in the early 1930s before 34, 35. So Gleisberg cycle means different things in different areas. Regions, yeah. It does it, regions. It does not mean a 100 year drought in South America necessarily, but it does highly correlated to the to floods in uh, southern China and drought in Midwest. Uh, shortly thereafter. And, and that's the cycle that we're focused on. And quite frankly, in the grains, given how important we are to the global food chain and grains, if you get that, if you get that cycle correct, what is South America have the biggest crops in the world won't make any difference. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the set of events where China has problems uh, due to flooding, which will impact its ability to feed itself and North America has problems due to drought in the center of the country, uh, in the countries, which would impact their ability to feed other countries, uh, would be pretty catastrophic for the world as a whole. Yeah, I don't, I don't talk about these cycles, you know, like with, uh, you know, glee and, 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 you know, I mean, it's, it's an interesting time to, to watch these cycles play out because it creates wild, but I mean, it's, it's very serious, you know, and I, and I, and, you know, my whole concept is that if you, I live down here in South Florida, you know, I, we're, we're fortunate that we can get a good weak read on when a hurricane's going to come down on us and, and do us in. At least we have the ability to do what we can to repair and, and get through the sure. least amount of overall collateral damage. If I'm a farmer or if I'm somebody who's an importer of food and I'm aware of the cycle and I'm, and, and I know 
that because Sean said that we're going to have some pretty big production in the next year because of El Nino, I would be buying much more aggressively than I would otherwise be buying if I and want to kind of uh, protect myself against the potential that a Gleisberg cycle drought scenario is going to play out in 24, 25. Like there's things you could do if you are aware of some of these things coming to take action. You can't mitigate the collateral damage altogether, but you can try to minimize it as much as can. So I view one of my callings or jobs is to be, is to, is to, for those that are willing to listen, because a lot of things I say is so foreign to people. They think, you know, that I'm, they don't know what to make of it, but if, if people can prepare or at least take myself seriously enough to prepare and take action, they can actually mitigate this significantly, including those countries that are vulnerable to what you just said. This is a probabilistic issue. It's understanding probabilities and understanding Bayesian adjustments to probabilities. And given what you say, uh, farmers would adjust how they treat their insurance decisions. They'd adjust how they treat the how much fertilizer they put on and when they put it on. Uh, It might be better to put it on now, even though it's expensive, than to wait two years and put it on in a period where you might find there's absolutely no moisture. Um, so, yeah, all of these decisions get impacted by what the, the things you're discussing and you're highlighting, these risks, which, you know, they don't come up that often. And they certainly, 90 years, it seems to me to be almost the exact cyclicality required to make sure nobody remembers something. Uh, <laughs> It's, it's so it's, true. It's, oh, the 30s, we, we read about it, we heard about it, but eh. It's outside of the living memory now. Everybody who lived through it is gone, and they're, they're, yeah. they're, they're unavailable to say, hey, take it seriously, it matters. And that's the real problem with the, with the grand solar cycle minimum. 220 years ago, oh, you know, that's not going to, you know, it, it's no one, it, it's, just, it's just too long. 90 years, he said, no longer, just too long for anyone to, to, to comprehend that these cycles can actually repeat uh, but we found in all the work that we've done, and we've been studying this our whole life, looking at some of the best data, the best scientists, the smartest people, you know, that these cycles are very repeatable, very um, uh, cyclical, and they're driven by very predictable things overall. And uh, it's just amazing how how much weather is 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 tuned to a, to a, a well timed grandfather clock, and and that's why you know that's. The statistical cyclical model is the model we follow. It's been, we've been doing it for a long time and, it, and it's given our customers a, a pretty leg up in being able to see things well in advance. Not perfectly. Do we do, we absolutely get things wrong, but you know, with the bigger picture stuff, you know, we, we, we tend to get enough of it right that the preparation that our customers take has proved to be. So just to give an example, back in August of 2020, our main recommendation to our farmers was to store all your grain in the bin and only sell what you absolutely had to to keep the farm going. Just keep the cash in the bin because we felt we were going to go through a, I, I think on on Real Vision, we talked about a, a multi-year phase transition higher, I think is how we cached it back then. Yeah. And we and, and, and it was a absolute, unbelievably profitable strategy for producers to put their cash grain oh, in. You, you, they doubled their money. If they listened to you, they were almost double the... And the, the cash market. basis, the cash basis, which is the difference between the futures market and the actual cash price, if it actually went into a premium. Right. So not only did they make the money on the price going up, they made the money on that cash price also outperforming the futures. Um, it was just a really, really solid strategy. And that would be something we would be looking to make that recommendation again when we feel the timing is right sometime in 23 you know right now you know we're wanting our farmers to get them to 
monetize their inventory right now. We think the cash inventory monetization is the right thing to do. So I got one last question before we have to call it quits, but how long can you store grain for? How storable are food products? If you store it uh, under tarps out in the open, like they do in many countries, not very long. Right. Six months, three months, depending. If you have really good grain bins that you can move the grain and you can keep the temperature at a pretty consistent level like we can in the U.S., like we can in South America, like uh, uh, like they can in Europe, you can pretty much keep grain um, in, in pretty good condition for years with an S and, and not really lose conditioning on it too much. Um, it's, it, you know, we really, you really, you really are able to store grain and not see much spoilage at all, unless you just happen to have a damage to your grain bin or something like that. But obviously if you're putting it out on the tarp, you know, and you don't have, or your grain is damaged or you don't have, you know, you, you don't have airflow, you know, that, you know, then, then obviously your options there are, are far, far less. But I guess I'm speaking about, you know, those that have that capacity, like Europe, like the U.S., like South America, you know, you can really store that grain for a long, long time. Uh, you know, some of I, mean, I have farmers that have stored grain for five years and they don't get any uh, quality penalties when they sell five-year-old corn because they've kept it that good. Ah, so. Fascinating. I had not realized that. Uh, Sean, uh, thank you so much for coming on. For people who'd like to kind of look, get a, take a deeper dive into your work, what should they do? Where should they look? I mean, I guess our website is always the best place to go at Hackett, H-A-C-K-E-T-T advisors.com uh, we have white paper on our smart money algorithm we have some podcasts on our s- cycle work for weather we have some sample reports you can download and get a feel for how we do it why we do it and um and, and see if the way we look at agriculture whether as a producer whether as an end user or as a trader or investor whether what we do might be of value to those that follow real vision so it's been a pleasure sean thank you so much for coming on thank you so much Harry. it's been an absolute blast thank you All right, that's a wrap on the next big trade. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, head over to realvision.com for financial insight you won't find anywhere else. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.